Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Western Hunting Hub podcast. In this episode, I have Kyle Warman from Paint River Llewellyn's. It is the dog breeder and kennel that I got my dog Bailey from. And if you remember from way back or listened to any of those episodes uh, around dog training, Within the last year or so, uh, she's now almost a year and a half, and that's kind of when I got her. This dog came around in a very unique way where someone gave her to me, uh, yet this this kennel is something else. Not just your run-of-the-mill, uh, definitely not a puppy mill. So um, place where they really focus on a lot of the genetics and the bloodlines, well, same thing, uh, and all of the um, interesting characteristics that you're looking for in uh, a dog to hunt with. So I know this episode is focused mainly on Llewellyn setters, which is a very small niche, uh, but the part that really interests me, it's not just about the kennel, but to learn about the different things in a kennel that you should be looking for or that even exist. And it's not just a sire sire and a dame getting together and making puppies. There's a lot more to it. And through some of the examples that Kyle gives on uh, what he's looking for in his dogs and the genetic testing that they do with their dogs and all of this sort of thing, I think we can relate it to uh, whether we like labs or uh, GSPs or whatever. There is, it, it doesn't matter. So Try and throw aside the fact that we're talking about just Llewellyn's um, or just learn about a new breed, a different breed, not a new breed at all. Uh, this is actually a, a breed that will eventually not exist anymore. So it's kind of that, that piece piece is pretty fascinating to me as well. So, uh, but anyway, look at it through this lens uh, because it's such a small niche and, uh, and gain some of that perspective on uh, from a, from a dog breeder. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, also got a couple of new discount codes. So I want to make sure to bring you uh, the attention to those. We have Ridge Patrol, so women's clothing line. If you're looking for uh, 10% off, you got Clint 10, C-L-I-N-T 10 is the coupon code for 10% off. And then Wilderness Athlete promo code or, or uh, Working Athlete promo code is Hunting Hub for 20% off. So make sure you go check those out and thanks to those companies for uh, sending those over. But again, thanks for listening and you guys support. I know we're in the middle of hunting season. I skipped last week. Uh, just, I've been hunting uh, and uh, working and said, ah, it's, it's fine. I don't need an episode this week. I got I got things I'm trying to do and uh, life, to, life to catch up on. So sorry about that, but I'm not sorry. I was doing life. 
So anyway, thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of Kyle Warren. Hello. Hey, Kyle. It's Clint. Hey, Clint. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. How was the day of hunting? <laughs> uh, very slow. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, this weather has not been very cooperative, so um, we got like more mosquito. When Usually when there's a lot of bugs, the birds just are not moving. It's hot. It's humid. Uh, you know, they're probably like sitting in the middle of a swamp that's impassable right now. And, oh. Uh, uh, it's just uh, rough stuff right now. Normally, I'm used to like, you know, 20, 30 flushes a day, and I'm, you've been in single-digit flushes the last two days. Shooting good, but, you yeah. know, just not not a lot of action. <laughs> yeah. Huh. No, it's been uh, really cool here, western South Dakota, and then uh, one more day of hot, then it's all like 60s, 70s with yeah. evenings of 40s, 50s, which is just awesome. Feels good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. but yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I wanted to get you on a little bit. Been uh, kind of thinking about it since since I got Bailey, and in kind of an unconventional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> however, it worked out. I have mm-hmm. been so thrilled, so thrilled, and it's been a. Bailey is now a part of our our family. I just texted those pictures, so you can see what she turned into. Um, cool. She's gorgeous absolutely a gorgeous dog and all the uh all three colors are just the perfect mix of a tricolor and uh-huh. we didn't didn't and and i i was kind of thinking well maybe it'd be cool like to have a darker one but i don't want the didn't want the dark dark and then the the super light was i mean i don't really care but it just was kind of one of those like extra little bonuses that she just turned out so gorgeous so has has that i couldn't believe the the ticking and how well that how much came in afterwards so she had she had three spots on her on her big spots one on her rump and one over ear and eye and then um one other spot and then it's just like filled in (laughs) everywhere oh yeah no those uh first nine months they really uh they really come in uh pretty heavy yeah no so that's uh it's been year and it's may june july august year and four months this is where she's at right now so she did mm-hmm. have a season last year a little mild season it just little running here and there she did miss out on her first hunt of the year uh because she swallowed a pine cone that got stuck inside of her and just like the smallest pine cone it was an inch and a half long and i can't do anything about it they're all over my yard I, I, you can't do anything um because i live in the black hills of south dakota and so swallowed that and just had to have it surgically removed so um not oh boy. A, yeah not a fun fun deal at all and kind of a kind of a scary deal actually it was just freak deal i mean she's a, a puppy chewing on not she's not like a heavy chewer she didn't pick up anything around the house i mean there's been a mild case of a shoe here and there but it's not really any issue at all we've we've been pretty fortunate with that and uh 
and, and working with her. So not having any issues there, but just that little teeny, about an inch long pine cone got, got lodged wow. in there somewhere and, and they went and removed huh. it and recovered just fine. So that was uh, good. Yeah, a blessing there, but she had missed out on, that was, oh, I do some, I do a lot of hunts for work. I I take people out and do um, a lot of deer hunts, but it was, this was a uh, pheasant hunt we had lined up. So she missed out on that one and then took her out on once proceeding after that and then had had a few with my, my family. So that was a good, just small amount for for her first year when she just didn't quite know what was going on but um she was figuring it out so she's she's absolutely the most intense dog i have ever had the most (laughs) oh she's so intense (laughs) and she is if there's a fly in the house it's the worst thing in the world we got to get rid of that fly because she will hunt that fly and point that fly just till we get rid of it (laughs) yeah it's kind of fun but yeah so my my uh lineup outline for the for the podcast here is just to uh like to learn a little bit more about what uh history of your kennel um why llewellyn's and i have learned definitely the importance of having having some good blood bloodlines and uh, that mm-hmm. allowing that instinct to to be right there uh, and then um kind of some of that I, i'd love to hear from i mean you said you didn't have the experience but I, i'm sure you chat with your customers and and where your dogs are all over the u.s oh yeah so, i mean i got a you know <clears throat> the whole first half of uh september you know my my phone's blowing up with videos and photos of everybody out in montana and you know so <laughs> yeah. um they all start out you know half my dogs go to very serious hunters that are hunting anywhere from 40 to 100 days a year and mm-hmm. you know they uh, a lot of them are in the lake states and uh they they start off in montana you know and then come back to lake states for grouse season and then you know maybe uh when deer season starts they might head out to the dakotas and then they come back and then often uh they'll head to whenever snow kicks them out of the grouse woods um they'll uh head to you know quail country or the oklahoma nebraska kansas something like that then i got a few people of mine that um you know, we'll head uh, down to the southwest for uh, scale quail or, or merns and gambles, you know, uh, those uh, species out that direction. So, so my dogs get around. I just don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I, I live vicariously through them and those experiences. I, I wouldn't know what to do with with um seeing the horizon i i need at least 30 trees in front of me to feel at home so. <laughs> oh oh man i i just watched a um onyx video on scouting for sharp tail and it was uh-huh. really good because i've looked i i was in western colorado for a while and i just moved back to south dakota and I grew up kind of on the eastern side of South Dakota. Western side's not a lot of pheasants. It's sharp tail. And there's rough grouse in the hills. Uh, okay. But the uh, trying to find, like, 
okay, there's so much land here. It's like, where do I concentrate? I only have so many miles. She only has so many miles. Where are we going to go? And that, that just zeroed it down to like, okay, that's easy. I can plan a route pretty simply through uh, the slopes where they're going to be on there. And I can identify from Onyx online, just seeing the, uh, what the berry bushes are going to be and trying to find that habitat that just makes sense to like on a windy day where they're going to want to get out of the wind. Uh, just all that I can see the taller grass versus the shorter grass that's uh, been overgrazed or, or grazed too much. And just all those little tricks that it's like, Oh man, I know it. And our season opened up yesterday, but, uh, Friday is my first day I can I can get out. So uh, yeah. I'll be going out in the field Friday, and I'm kind of kind of excited about it, or very excited about it, just to uh, just be alone with her. Last year's hunts were all with, with some other dogs, and it's just I'm ready to be. I, I do most of my hunting al- alone anyway, so mm-hmm. I want to ready to be be with her and in the field and just work with her. So I'm it's going to be yeah. fun. So yeah, that's well, awesome. But we, I've been kind of recording anyway. So, but but thanks so much for jumping on the podcast, and and we'll get rolling right into this. So, if you wouldn't mind, Kyle, just introduce yourself and and what's your what's your a little bit about Paint River Llewellyns. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, you know, like I said, my my name is Kyle Warren, um, owner and operator of Paint River Llewellyns. Uh, I've had Llewellyns for eighteen years. Um, and, uh, pretty much jumped all in, uh, right away with, um, uh, with starting to breed them. I, I, I got my first one in, uh, 2004 and, uh, once, uh, I had my first hunting season with that one, uh, she was like six months old in, in that October and, um, uh, pretty much was the best grouse dog that I personally had owned at that time. And, uh, a couple of years, uh, rolling into that, I, um, I had a handful of them and, uh, it just kept growing, you know, from, from that point forward. Um, yeah, I've been fortunate. Yeah. I've, I'm a career dog trainer. So, um, I'm very, very fortunate that I've always allocated, you know, uh, in years past, you know, September, October, first half of November to hunting full time with the dogs. And over the last 15 years, uh, you know, the entire hunting season has been dedicated to, uh, you know, hunting full time. So, so the dogs get a lot of work. I usually, am uh, uh, time on the ground in the woods with the dogs every year is between 450 and 500 hours. And we're usually doing, you know, 65 to 70 miles off trail in the woods, uh, beating the bush, uh, all season. Um, so every dog, I don't have a dog here that, that hunts less than 65 days, uh, a season. We try to get everybody as close to 80 days as we can. Um, but, uh, given my dog power, most of, most of my hunts are usually, um, hour and a half, two hours long. Um, so I can, uh, I try to get everybody worked, uh, you know, five, six days a week, um, you know, throughout the entire season, depending upon how old they are and 
and uh, what we're looking at. But um, yeah, we pretty much uh, exclusively hunt rough grouse. That's you know been my native bird, whether when I uh, lived on the East Coast and um, certainly here in uh, 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 the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I hunt Wisconsin and Minnesota as well, pretty much several hours in every direction. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, it's all we do and what we do every day. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's a lot of hunting. <laughs> that is absolutely it, a lot it of is hunting. It is a lot of hunting. I, I, uh, I love it, but, um, uh, certainly my body is ready for the end of the season when it gets here. Sure. So. <laughs> sure. So why Llewellyn's like, right. And as people come across my dog, they is like, what is that? And there's been a couple of really good guesses, um, uh, of two people that have said, Oh, is that a Llewellyn? Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. but not a very common dog. My vet loves seeing her, uh, just because it's another, another, um, it's just a breed he doesn't get to work with very often. So, um, sure. what, what's so special to this breed? And I, I know, I absolutely know now, like well, why mm-hmm. this breed is so special. Um, my history is with Goldens and um, some had a Springer once and a Brittany, uh, but but this having a pointing dog or a, or a setter is brand new to me, and mm-hmm. it, it's sure. probably something that's going to change the history or change the future <laughs> of my uh, what dogs I have from now on. But so yeah, what, yeah talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, well, uh, I mean, just as far as my pointing dog background in general uh to kind of you know answer the question why Llewellyn so um you know as I uh mentioned you know uh given given how much time I spend in the woods and as a grouse hunter um I've had the opportunity to hunt over hundreds and hundreds of dogs of most pointing breeds uh in the grouse woods certainly of the over 550 uh, plus dogs that I've uh, seen run in the grouse woods, you know, uh, more than half of them have been setters and many of those have been of the Llewellyn strain for sure. Um, but I've seen, you know, most of the versatile breeds run many different families of um, bloodlines of, of those different breeds. My aunt, uh, when I was a kid growing up, she bred German shorthaired pointers. So that was the first dog that I ever had. Uh, was a great dog. Uh, in the field. Um, and, uh, then when I was a teenager, I had, um, uh, fell in love with, uh, Vichlas. Uh, I had several Vichlas. I actually had a couple litters of them, uh, later on in my teen years. I was just obsessed with, uh, uh, the dogs and I grew up in a dog breeding family. Um, but no matter how hard I tried, I could not, get a healthy Vishla. Um, hmm. uh, didn't matter where in the world I bought it, no matter what the pedigree was, it just, I just, uh, kept getting the lemon when it came to the health department of it all. Um, so I looked at the wired hair Vishla, um, uh, it's a little more hardy and, uh, she, uh, had, uh, uh, one of those and she was, a she was a great dog. I had worked with several other ones. She ended up just having really bad hips and, so I uh, turned to look at uh, other breeds, and I had worked with a handful of Llewellyns. Uh, my girlfriend at the time 
you know, was all about uh, Llewellyn's from everything she had read. And so I was like, yeah, you know what? Um, I, I know a very good breeder. Let me let me reach out and uh, maybe go look at some dogs. So that's I had gotten that Llewellyn. I was 24. Um, I'm 42 now. And uh, like I said, uh, I, you know, I was I was been obsessed with with uh, grouse hunting since I was 10 years old uh, with my first uh, GSP. And once I had uh, uh, Rogue was my first Llewellyn from Lynn Hill uh, Llewellyn Setters in uh, Sagertown, Pennsylvania. I retired a number of years ago now. Um, but, uh, yeah, that dog was just outstanding. And with as much time as I spent in the woods and, and I'm training everybody else's dogs all the time, you know. So I needed a dog that was um, had a tremendous amount of natural ability. Um super easy uh to live with super easy to train a dog that you could um you know do a little bit every day and it you know reach its genetic potential um uh and you know that dog rogue was certainly that i very soon um thereafter i had uh, gotten a, a few other dogs and uh, a few other setters and, um, I had a, a couple litters a year, a few litters a year for like the first eight years that I, I had the breed and, uh, time flies, you know, I, I, I didn't realize, you know, like it, it caught up on me that these few great dogs that I had, I, they had a few litters and I didn't keep any. And then the last, uh, litters, um, they had, I, I kept one out of each and, they were good dogs, but in my eyes, they weren't breeding quality. They certainly were not quite as good as uh, their parents, and that's certainly not a way to continue a breeding program. Yeah. So I had uh, them bought uh, 11 dogs over a year and a half's time out of those bloodlines to try to, you know, make up for my bad decisions of not keeping puppies out of earlier litters and multiple litters to to build up the breeding program, and out of those 11 uh, from similar lines, uh, four of them made the breeding cut. And I was also always constantly, every year I was buying, um, you know, a handful of dogs from, from different, uh, breeders, different lines, uh, seeing what worked best for me, um, uh, as a grouse hunter and, you know, what kind of fit my style, my preferences, um, and, uh, you know, just what was most effective and enjoyable. So, um, yeah, certainly for me, it was all within the Llewellyn breed, the Llewellyn strain. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been a guest on numerous podcasts at this point, and I always, always emphasize, you know, in all of them, uh, I'm not a Llewellyn snob. It's just always been where the dogs that have fit me like a glove exist um you can you know so the whole uh you know uh llewellyn are english setters but english setters are not necessarily llewellyn's you know llewellyn is just a strain of english setter that's been separated by uh the field dog stud book um for you know a hundred years now um so they've you know been there's definitely you can definitely see um some uh, differences between our American field bred, uh, English setters, um, 
Ryman type setters uh, and the Llewellyn setters. Um, but, uh, you know, they're all collectively English setters. Um, you can get at this point in time in history, you can find Llewellyn setters that run and look just like, uh, field bred field trial dogs here, you know, our English setters. And, uh, you can find dogs that are the other end of the spectrum, which are more like my dogs. Um, and, uh, uh, don't, don't typically run, um, the way that field trial dogs do though, <laughs> with some of the videos and photos and reports I get of my people that go out to the prairie and they show me their GPSs and how much mileage the dogs covered and at what miles per hour, I'm always shocked, you know, because the, the dogs just, you know, they adapt and they don't, uh, mm-hmm. they certainly don't perform. At the at that velocity and those miles in the grouse woods, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So it's always interesting to see the uh, the intelligence and the adaptability of the breed based on the terrain. Um, but my dogs, I, I breed for close working dogs. I mean, there are Llewellyns out there that you know in the prairie they will go hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards, you know. And my dogs, uh, they they're not like that, you know. They're fifty fifth depending upon the breeding, you know. They're 50 the 200 yard dogs usually you know um uh on the on the prairie and uh in the grouse woods they're usually under 100 yards and the majority of them are you know 30 to 50 yards you know and that's generally the sweet spot for the type of terrain that i that i hunt in um and there's lots of things that you know you can take this short to medium range dog and do things in learned environments to to promote to promote that closeness or to try to promote a little more boldness and um uh and range with that so it depends on how you raise them and they're running solo the type of cover they're running in as to you know what extent you might influence uh uh range but there's absolutely genetic component to that and uh i'm really big on cooperation i mean i I have absolutely zero use for a dog that wants to live at a hundred yards in the grouse woods and the habitat that I, I'm, I don't care how well they handle birds. <laughs> um, yeah. a dog that is a hundred yards away from me, um, is not an effective, fun, useful, uh, hunting companion and hunting partner. So, um, you know, I have lots of my dogs that would end up probably being better, um, Field trial quality dogs are dogs that are definitely not breeding quality for for my program um, uh, that have that level of independence and and that type of search. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, the Llewellyn's a, a great breed, you know, collectively speaking, they're biddable. Um, they're they're a soft dog. Setters in general are soft dogs, but they're a soft dog. And, uh, my dogs, my line is, is very soft. I breed for softness. Um, there's a smaller margin of error when you're training them, um, when they're soft, cause you know, softer dogs, you know, can shut down more easily. They're a little less forgiving. Um, but at the end of the day, again, these are incredibly intelligent dogs that do not want to give you any trouble. They're super soft. Um, so, uh, having bred military grade shepherds for a decade, uh, I always say, uh, you know, both both breeding those shepherds happened like in the middle of my two decades of of Llewellyns, and uh, I always say, uh, you know, I 
when I had to basically commit to breeding one breed or the other because both programs had kind of reached a point where I could not do both well based on time and space. Um, I, I thought about it real hard and, you know, I got into dogs and dog training because of my passion for bird hunting and, and I dedicate so much time to that. Um, and the search and rescue aspect of my life was amazing and I'm glad I did it for 10 years. Um, but I, I very much, much more so like the person I get to be. I get, I like, I like who I am as a human oh, when sure. I'm handling yeah. Llewellyn's rather than military grade German shepherds that are bred to get shot five times and take down the perp. <laughs> oh, so that is, you know, that is a, such a totally different animal you know, and a, just different, a totally different animal. Yeah. It's such a different world. <laughs> yeah, it is a um, very different world. Wow. Um, and, uh, um, so, you know, I, I like breeding dogs that I feel I'll be able to handle when I'm 80. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, I, at my peak of insanity, I had 17 in my house, you know, um, you know, now oh my for, gosh. Actually the, for the first time, for the first time in over six years, I'm down to single digits, which admittedly feels great. Um, but, uh, yeah, Llewellyn's are, they're a great breed, but there's, you know, something that, uh, I've, I've talked to people about in the past is, um, a question that drives me crazy when I see it in all these social media groups is, uh, you know, what's everybody think, you know, this is what I do. This is, you know, as far as hunting, what's everybody think about, you know, an, an English setter. And that is, you're going to get every, uh, answer on the spectrum, you know, um, right. because there's, there's no breed out there that, um, has a, a, a greater variety and type in the pointing dog world than the English setter. I mean, the, the GSPs, they're, they're big in numbers, you know, so based on the population size, I'm, I'm sure, you know, yeah, I've seen, I've seen the gamut in GSPs as well. Um, but certainly with the English setters, you can have dogs that are bootlickers, uh, you know, by, by bloodline and family, and you can have dogs that are a thousand yard dogs and never look back, you know, um, you can have dogs that have great off switches. You can have dogs that don't have great off switches. You can have dogs that are super soft. You can have dogs that are tough as nails, you know, all, and they're all English setters. So to ask collectively, you know, how the breed is, you really can't do that. You really need to, um, you know, research breeders, um, you know, look at how, what, what those what those breed, what individual breeders, uh, you know, what their, what their goals are, their mission is, um, how long they've been doing that and, you know, what level of, um, effectiveness, uh, they're at in, um, in their breeding goals, you know, so, uh, that's going to significantly influence the type of dog that you have. So Llewellyn's have always been, uh, uh, my sweet spot. Um, and you know, they've, uh, they fit me really well, but I, I myself have literally raised over 100 Llewellyns in, in just 18 years. Um, and I say just 18 because wow. that's a lot of, a lot of dogs <laughs> in, sh- in that period of time yeah. uh, up to their first hunting season or beyond. And I've only bred out of, out of those dogs that I kept myself. I have breeding rights dogs that are in my program, but also um, uh, in re- more recent years. But of those over 100, 101 to be exact with the one that made the cut from last year, I've only bred out of 12 of them, you know, so, 
uh, and those over 100 are across every bloodline that exists um, <laughs> in the world of Llewellyn setters. And I have these 12 from various families, not and kind of narrowed it down to a couple of families that I feel fit me best and kind of my brand of dog, my brand of setter. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's, there's, there's plenty of not good quality Llewellyns out there. They're a great breed collectively, statistically. Um, I see more Llewellyn setters being my type of grouse dog than any other breed. And again, that's why I've, I've just stay so committed to this breed and, uh, you know, really jumped all in early on. And as, uh, I've been, uh, doing, I guess it's been around six years now, um, utilizing, uh, 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 embark, um, vet, uh, for doing genetic testing, doing DNA COIs and, um, seeing where, uh, the homozygosity is on on each of the chromosomes and how that can line up or not line up uh, when we're comparing um, uh, you know different breedings and stuff because the problem is while um, in some ways uh, it's a blessing that the Llewellyn line was separated from the English setter with field dog stud book because we're able to um, you know I, I have the dogs I have today because of that separation. Um, the downside, uh, which is equally as bad is, um, you have a closed gene pool and the gene pool is so small to begin with, you know, oh, so right. it's, it's pretty much impossible to go back four or five generations and almost not have like a, several common ancestors with almost every other dog out there. And that's a problem. Um, you know, so you, you have, uh, there's some breeders working together with a couple different, um, genetic companies, you know, trying to, you know, be, just become more educated on what we have in our dogs. Um, I've, I've tested over 160 dogs, uh, uh, DNA wise, uh, with these, uh, blood testing, uh, kits that, that we can do, or actually saliva swabs, but, um, they do the DNA tests and, uh, we get a, we get a, a good amount of information from them. But for me, the main use of it, uh, has been the DNA COI. And interestingly, you know, you do like a paper trail COI, COI is coefficient of inbreeding for those that, um, don't know. And, um, so every dog has a COI, uh, if you're just using like a pedigree database, a whole literal have the same COI. But in actuality, because of genetic randomness, um, lots of puppies in the same litter have a different COI. And I've seen it range as much as 10 or 11% difference in the same litter, which is very substantial. So, um, you know, Llewellyn's collectively, um, you know, veterinary geneticists consider uh, 10% like optimum genetic mm. health and anything higher than that you start to get stuff going on behind the scenes with genetic mutations. Um, and at some point, um, those recessive mutations, um, that are negative could, you know, kind of rear their ugly head to the surface. And once the gene is out of the bottle, it, it, you can't really put it back in. You just basically have to eliminate that whole pool of dogs that have that. If you want to breed, breed it out of what you currently have in the breeding pool. So, so this, uh, genetic testing has been, it's definitely influenced uh, uh, 
my selection process. It's kind of like the first layer of cutting, if you will, you know, when I, when I DNA test, uh, my litters. Um, and, uh, uh, it's, it's been a problem, you know, kind of looking at down the road, you know, so there's two elements when we look at the Llewellyn, um, the first element being, okay, so we have this small gene pool breed or strain. So if, if we're to stay within that strain, um, how do we, you know, we, we need to continually, you know, play the scientist, uh, with, um, with the health end of things. But then there's this whole other aspect as to why we're breeding these dogs in the first place, which is their, um, performance, right. You know, so, uh, my own program, uh, while I'll breed field dog subbook Llewellyns, as long as I can breed healthy ones that meet the type that I want, you know, my own program is out of time, uh, now where I'm, you know, three generations deep into my own dogs. Um, and, uh, you know, when I look at the, the types of dogs I selected for, um, like I said, out of the ones that I raised myself over the span of time, I've had them, I've only breed at, bred out of 12 of them it'd be kind of kind of counterproductive for me to start to breed to uh, we'll say Llewellyn lines or families or dogs that are not of the type that I want just so I can call it a Llewellyn. <laughs> right. um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because I care about the type of dog I've been trying to select for my type, my brand of dog for a long time that fits me and my clients that seek the same type of dog fits them well yeah you've got um, you got a two-fold challenge of yeah, yeah. and it's a small uh, it's gene a, pool the the previous yeah. biology teacher in me is going nuts with this just the <laughs> uh yeah. it's very fascinating to know yeah to hear that well, it's that, a challenge yeah I mean, it's, a, it's it's a big challenge and i mean the short answer uh you know is um uh you know you do the best you can with with what you have, but uh, you know to to be so strict in selection, to then just like turn around and and uh, breed to a, a a healthy dog that is of a different bloodline, uh, but of a very different type, and then select there. You know, it's the type of outcross that um, you know you're going to get some of what you want and some not what you want. Um, but uh, I, I don't know my my litters knock on wood have been super consistent um uh in recent years because of you know selection for what i've looked for uh, i actually just came back um uh last month from uh italy i was in italy seeing english setters work uh black grouse in the italian alps which was pretty awesome hmm. and uh it was it was a over four-year plan in the making COVID happened. I wasn't able to get there in 2020 when I was supposed to first go and then schedule again this winter. Uh, Putin went crazy, so I wasn't sure if I was going to get to go over there or not, but I didn't cancel and uh, had some summer litters and girls in heat. But between my wife, Vanessa, and a good friend and client of mine um, that has a couple of my dogs, they held down the fort so I could go over there. And um, I wanted to see some setters run there uh, because my my style, my type of dog, uh, is very much, uh, I kind of, th I think of Llewellyn's collectively, um, 
and and at least mine specifically is kind of like hybrids between like the old world european style dogs and the american style dogs of today yeah um uh they're they're a good blend um that fits for north american bird hunting um for foot hunters that that want close to medium range dogs collectively speaking and you know this is a generalization but that's usually how i kind of describe the llewellyn today and certainly my my dogs as as hybrids because the llewellyn while there's shoot through tree trials and stuff and there are llewellyn trials overall the llewellyn most breeders that are out there uh today in this country and we collectively pretty much have all the blood in the world most other places in the world that have llewellyn blood at this point they're importing it from the u.s (laughs) oh wow Um, uh, very often there's a couple kennels in Europe that, that, that is not the case, but, um, that blood is already here in the U S so there's no getting new blood from around the world in the Llewellyn pool that is going to be approved by field dog stud book and brought here. Um, that, that, that does not exist, you know? So, and we have like 90%, more than 90% of the Llewellyn population in the world here at this point, but we have all the blood. There's no new blood out there. There huh. might be old blood that hasn't been brought in here in a while, but it's already in our dogs. So, um, so there's no new blood is the problem. And, you know, thing about purebred dogs is registries are closed. The pool gene pool is closed. Um, different, different, uh, breed groups, uh, like UKC, which just bought field dogs book last year, AKC, like the, there's, there's like breed restoration programs that you can do. But that doesn't exist for the Llewellyn because technically the Llewellyn is a pure strain of the English setter. So as soon as you start crossing English setters in or anything, then it's just an English setter. It's not a Llewellyn anymore, quote unquote, you know. So this is where the purest and the battle of that comes into play with just the ethics of health and and the eventual decline of that. Um, So I've used Embark Vet um, and their DNA tests, their kits, very much so. But um, I went to Italy I saw English setters uh, uh, run uh, the dog that I actually fancied four years ago that inspired this trip. And I've been communicating with the breeder ever since uh, that is now six and a half years old. I was hoping if I really liked him, that family of dogs and other dogs that I saw run over there that week, that I would get a puppy or two, you know, in the next, you know, a couple of years to try out to see if, you know, it could be a stud that I could tie into my dogs. And, it turned out that um, this breeder usually does usually doesn't keep these dogs past their seventh birthday. The mountains are hard on the dogs there. I guess they're probably like the Rockies. I mean, it was pretty dramatic landscape, you know. Oh, um, so it's hard hard on the dogs going up and down, you know, thirty yeah. to forty five degree a- angles all day, and it's different there, you know. Um, maybe they do this out west in the Rockies. I've I've never hunted out there, but there's no going back to the truck to get other dogs. Right. So this breeder's got six of his dogs and they all go on a leash, you know? Um, so they're all on a leash except for the one or two dogs that are running. And those dogs run for an hour or two. They call them back in, they hook those dogs on a leash and the other ones go. So (laughs) the first dogs, I think of dogs in America trying to do this. And I think they would go nuts. It'd be kind of like the equivalent of like a mobile chain gang, I guess. (laughs) Um, you know, because you got the, you got the breeder and the handler, staring at uh these two dogs working the mountainside and the breeders holding four other dogs on leashes also just watching the the other dogs those two dogs run on the mountainside you know and they're just totally chill because that's just their system 
because you start off hunting at 6,000 feet and you might end at 9,000 or 10,000 feet five or seven hours later, you know? So, um, it's a very different system of hunting based on the terrain that's dictated by the terrain that they hunt. Um, but this dog Duca that, uh, I very much liked and you can go to paint river Llewellyn's or paint river setters and go to the Cyrus page. I have some really cool videos there of him. And, uh, anyway, I ended up being able to, uh, I had to sell a lot of dogs to do it. Uh, but, um, <laughs> I ended up buying Duca and importing Duca back on, uh, about two and a half weeks ago. So I got him here in the States now. Um, and I actually, I, I, I'm in the process of breeding him right now to one of my top Llewellyn girls. So there'll be English setter puppies, you know, if we're talking logistics of registration, but, um, you know, I, <clears throat> I've worked too hard for my own dogs to try to create a type that works best for me. And, um, you know, for me, you know, like I was saying, they, my dogs, while they're these, they're these hybrids, what I favor more and what I find more functional, um, for me is, uh, a little more of the European style, uh, uh, setter. So, yeah. So I'll have I'll have field dog field dog stud book Llewellyn's, um, you know, going forward. But I will have um, you know uh, a couple litters of quote unquote English setters uh, each year going forward as well, um, just for preparation over the next twenty years or so, when it just pretty much becomes impossible to breed a dog to desired type within the Llewellyn breed. Um, and it be healthy, you know, uh, genetically, you know, where we're going to start to see problems. So, yeah. uh, the breed is kind of at its cusp, uh, with it. And, um, uh, those are challenges that it certainly faces. Um, and we, we have the technology there. I mean, the science is amazing. Um, and it's only going to get better. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, I certainly, have looked to expand my pool of dogs within the umbrella of the English setter to help preserve what I've been working for for two decades to make for myself and the people that, you know, fancy the type of dog that, that I like to, to hunt with. Um, so right. yeah, that's, that's a history lesson and springboarding <laughs> no into the future with, uh, you know, what I have going on and, and just, uh, things that, that the Llewellyn, uh, setter as a breed is dealing with. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovas.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. 
Well, that's it's good lessons also for people who aren't even looking for a pointer. I mean, just to know the the level of research and discussion and planning going into these bloodlines and knowing uh, that that you as a kennel or the kennel they're looking at is doing this level of work to make sure they're they're keeping uh, that inbreeding out to um, not just breed to sell to to make make a buck on a what was a its dad's was a a good hunting dog and and now you've got these lines and lines of quality features that that are all coming together and creating something that that's taken decades so it's helpful for for us whether we're lab people or or setter people to to kind of pay attention to that because I, I always get nervous about that you're gonna you're gonna go get a dog that's gonna be in your family and be a part of your life for at least a decade to decade and a half hopefully um and they're gonna be around so you gotta you just don't want to <laughs> just uh, end up with a lemon like you said with those those visas that you had that just yeah. you couldn't get no, what you're it, looking for yeah and it's um you know there's then there's a lot of you know, Llewellyn's that are purists out there that again, are going to live and die by the name at some point in the future, you know, and you know, there's, there's lots of dogs. There are lots of Llewellyn's out there that have COIs, you know, again, if we're saying 10% is ideal and you can't make a Llewellyn that's like less than 14% today. And that's like the extreme ends of relatedness uh, that you can do. That's as much of a quote unquote outcross as you can make. But for the most part, you know, you're looking at uh, Llewellyn's in the high teens to mid-20s is where a lot of them are. And there's a good number, a real good number, that is north of 35% into the 40s. Oh, um, wow. Um, you know, so so that, that those are dangerous levels. And, you know, if, uh, the effects of in, in, inbreeding depression that you see is, you know, s- smaller litter sizes, um, decreased stamina, you start to see some, uh, you know, undesirable traits, you know, uh, uh, in their personalities, um, you know, skin issues, you know, there's, you know, once you, once you start, you know, doubling up all those, all those genes generation after generation, at some point it's going to come back to, to bite you. And it's interesting, you know, um, I, I did the DNA test, you know, I brought swabs with me to Italy so I could swab a few dogs over there to run the tests and um you know so when you did when you get the embark panel back you know they they have obviously data on all the dogs in in that breed so you know embark identifies the difference between llewellyns and english setters you know because they they've now had enough llewellyns done that they can see that there is you know a difference between them and they can see that but um so there's this uh uh curve that um this this graph that shows like where this individual dog that you're running the test kit on uh is with the coi um you know so whatever let's just say 20 percent. i can't remember off the top of my head what the quote-unquote english setter was right but i so i had this dog uh i had these dogs that i ran that were from italy registered english setters I, i labeled them as such so then I see the curve for the English setter, which is different than the Llewellyn setter. And the English setter was, you know, whether these are show people or whether these are um, field trial type people, um, 
you know, it was it was just as high as the Llewellyn. And you think about like purebred dog breeding in general, right? You know, everybody's trying to cling on to the quote unquote great dogs, you know. So uh, I'm sure I don't know anything about the show world, you know, but I'm sure yeah. that, you know, the English setter that's winning all the shows, you know, is uh, probably, you know, producing, you know, very, very big numbers of, of litters, you know. Yeah. And then um, same thing, you know, the uh, Shadow Oak Bow is like the the legendary English setter of, of uh, modern era that, you, you know, you're always seeing advertised, you know, Shadow Oak Bow, you know, uh, son or, or grandchildren, you know, and, um, you know, there are, there are probably thousands of dogs that have the shadow of blood in them. And that's not a good thing. Right. Um, everybody wants that blood. We understand why, you know, um, uh, you know, it was a great dog of our time for that type of dog, you know? Um, but the problem is, and, and Llewellyn's, this is magnifies tenfold because of the because of the lack of the size of our gene pool is we have what we call pop popular sire issues. So every kennel has it. My kennel is no exception. You know, we, we, uh, we find our selection, you know, through, through the selection process, we find the stud or studs that, um, uh, are exactly what we're looking for. They end up producing well. So they produce a lot of litters, you know? So next thing you know, 10 years later, you know, every Llewellyn has that dog in it, you know, (laughs) which is not good. There's that there's your, you know, so, you know, yeah, you can get that particular stud on as many different females to diversify his blood. But, um, again, it's a closed pool and it's not a big pool to begin with. So you really need as many dogs across the entire population in the breeding population, um, to be getting the best mix of genes in there. And to do that and have performance selection standards with a really small gene pool breed is pretty much impossible. Um, you know, you need to, to have both performance and health. You need a very large pool to be able to do that. And our pool is continually shrinking. It's not growing. Um, so so th- those are definite challenges. But, um, you know, we see them. In every breed, just the breeds that suffer more are breeds that are that are much um, smaller in size, you know, and, uh, you know, happens and it happens with breeds that are not that common as well that come to the U.S. from Europe. You know, I'm sure like breeds like the Poodle Pointer, uh, the Small Muslim Lander. These are breeds that everybody knows about, but they're not breeds that are like, you know, prolific in quantity. Right. Yeah. You know. So there's, you know, and those are two breeds in terms of the breeders that are in this country, you know, full disclosure, I know nothing about any of them, but I would guess that there's not several dozen breeders of those breeds in the lower 48 breeding these dogs, you know, um, for performance standards. My guess would be there's, there's not that many and they probably have some of the same dogs, you know, um, uh, related wise, you know, um, uh, just based on, uh, you know, the background of the dogs and there's just, there's not that many that have come here. So everybody looks to import from the good dogs, you know? So now everybody that is importing, are importing from the same kind of dog, you know? And, uh, so that's an issue, uh, in purebred dog breeding and has just been 
unbelievably magnified with the Llewellyn setter. And hopefully um, breeders will, you know, take the big scary step and, um, you know, as they find their programs, uh, you know, kind of at a precipice, they either will be outcrossing to Llewellyn setters very much unrelated to try to help, you know, extend the life of the Llewellyn um, or they'll, um, you know, be okay with uh, calling their offspring English setters with a high concentration of Llewellyn blood, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the each breeder will have to make their choices, you know. The Pierce will sure struggle with that. Yeah. And, I, and here in South Dakota, the uh, uh, you do have the purest pointing people and then the lab people. And so I figure I'd just <laughs> jump right in the middle by shooting yep. my birds with a pump shotgun instead oh <laughs> and having a fancy dog and uh-huh. uh and then just that would allow me to be be equal with everybody yep. <laughs> well no. welcome welcome to buy all <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i'm uh i'm working on a um on my side business i am definitely working on and uh shields uh gift cards working on a a, a new new shotgun that it's time for an upgrade. I've been in Colorado too long, hunting a lot of big game. I need a need a better shotgun to to chase around some birds because we have yep. the opportunity here in South Dakota. It's it's yeah. it's well, great. I, I I'm sporting a new gun for the first time in nine years myself this year, so I'm all for I'm all for a new gun once in a while. Yeah, absolutely. So um, switching gears a little bit, you've said a few things that a lot of things that are very interesting to me, but one that, that almost had me a little concerned because I'm thinking about, well, the transition, uh, not a transition because my dog, all it knows is, is this country. Uh, but this, the things that you have bred for are meant for those Northern woods staying pretty close, medium range. Um, but I, and then hunting for an hour and a half, uh, I had a shed hunt this spring with my dog and she'd come with me every shed hunt. And as long as it wasn't too warm, uh, and man, we were going and going and I had to just like try to slow her down. It's like, we are too far from the truck. You got to just chill out, quit, <laughs> quit chasing grasshoppers. And, uh, cause she was, I mean, that was less than a year old. Um, so she's still a puppy and, and got that energy and just going and going and going. And I don't have a, didn't have a GPS collar on it at the time. So didn't know what kind of mileage she covered, but that was a 13 mile day for me. I don't know what Mm -hmm. she did. And it had me concerned like, Oh shoot, if you're going an hour and a half and those dogs are are meant to like hunt hard for that shorter amount of time with all of your customer that customers that you're seeing hunt this bigger country in the Western country, uh, open stuff, can you talk about some of those adaptations that they're they're showing and being able to do these longer hunts uh, because yeah, you have so, to? Yeah, so I mean, conditioning a dog is conditioning a dog. You know, ninety um, percent of people's hunting dogs are not in shape to do the task they're asking it to do. Okay, mm-hmm. um, so you know, there's a. I like to think of you know, it, it really takes six to eight weeks to get a dog in top peak form. All right, and and most people don't do that because they don't have the time to do that unless you're a dog professional, you know, or your dog is able to 
come to you with work and you work outdoors, you know, and yeah, you know, it's, it's very challenging to do that. So that's the first thing to, you know, um, I, I've never had a single complaint ever about stamina in any of my dogs, you know, um, uh, of all my serious hardcore people. Um, but my people that are avid hunters and they're, you know, um, uh, hunting 40 to 100 days a year on wild birds, like their dogs are prepared, you know, um, they're, uh, uh, you know, they're in shape to do it. So, um, and I, you know, I, I, I very much, you know, I always, you know, when you buy a dog from me, you're, you're buying into the family. <laughs> um, and I, I, I keep in touch with all my serious people very closely because, um, you know, not just the dogs that I have here with me, but their siblings and, uh, uh, all the other offspring that goes out. Um, you know, it, it's information for me as a breeder, you know? Um, but I've never had that issue. I mean, literally no exaggeration. I got like 40 some odd dogs of, of 40 incredibly intense hunters, um, that are coming back and going to Montana right now, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, just, I'm getting texts as just as we're talking right now on the phone, I'm getting texted videos and photos of, (laughs) of one of my, one of my breeding race females that's out in Montana just for a couple of days now. And, and she's killing it, you know? Um, yeah. and so these same dogs, you know, um, I, I had mentioned, you know, I get, I get a, like screenshots of, of the GPS, you know, and with dogs doing, you know, they're, they're doing 20 miles, you know, and they're maintaining, you know, um, you know, 12 miles an hour for like two hours, you know, yeah. I'd have, I'd have to pop some anxiety medication if my dogs were doing, my own personal dogs were doing that, you know, cause <laughs> in the grouse woods, the, the most functional speed is like four to seven and a half miles an hour. And, you know, if, if the dogs are running eight miles an hour in the grouse woods, it better be late season, uh, with really cool temperatures and some wind, um, uh, you know, something that is very different from the hunting that you do to the hunting that I do is I've never hunted rough grass a day in my life, according to wind. Um, because in the thick woods, it changes direction every 30 feet. Um, oh, yeah. you know, whereas, you know, you go out West, right. And as per my people and, and envisioning the, the lay of the land, right. You, you can, your dog could be on point 40 to 50 yards away from the bird because there's a consistent wind. You might drive a mile or two one way or the other to work habitat from a certain direction because of what the weather is that day. I never, ever do that on a day-to-day basis, my entire grouse hunting career. Um, because unless you have a, you know, massive weather front coming through creating a 10 mile an hour wind in the woods in later season, when all the, when all the soft mass is down and the leaves are down, it's just pointless. It literally changes direction all the time. So, you know, your points might be 40, 50 yards at times based on the weather that day. And, you know, productive points in the grouse woods are five to 15 yards away, you know? Um, so it's just, a, it's a very different, uh, scenario, but yeah, you know, dogs in the prairie might run, you know, um, nine to 13 miles an hour, you know, and, uh, those same dogs, that are intelligent and adaptable are going to run five to seven and a half miles an hour 
when they're in uh, the grouse woods, huh. you know, um, and that's, you know, people always ask, I get this question asked all the time, you know, all the time, you know, I, I, you know, I follow you on social media and I really like the way uh, that you are with your dogs and your dogs seem like great grouse dogs, but how would they handle pheasants or how would they handle chucker? And, and my answer is always the same thing. An intelligent dog can handle everything. Okay. Um, it doesn't matter what species an intelligent dog can handle at all. You know, um, sure. Uh, uh, I'll stick my nose in the air. You know, I mean, again, my people hunt all over the country and, um, a lot of people, you know, you know, I'll get, I'll sell dogs to Oregon, you know, and, you know, like, I, I got, you know, I'm super happy I'm here, but I got a bone to pick with you. I, I think the chucker is the, the king, you know, of the uplands <laughs> kind of thing. I was like, well, chucker terrain is pretty unforgiving to the human, you know, um, but uh, tracking 30 birds up a mountainside where there's wind is is not the same as wind that's constantly changing direction in super thick woods. And, you know, I know in Montana, you know, you can basically hit rough grouse over the head with your fist. Um, but, um, (laughs) that is, that is definitely not the case, uh, from Minnesota to the East coast. Um, they might as well be a different species. So, you know, um, every bird is the king of its own habitat. Um, uh, but, uh, certainly birds that have the tremendous amount of cover, that these birds have in long contiguous habitats, um, that run like pheasants and, uh, you know, are always mastering putting, you know, the spruce tree between you and them. Um, and you get dogs that can locate these birds, you know, and there's bird finders and then there's great grouse dogs, you know, and what's the difference? Um, the great grouse dog is the dog that creates shot opportunities for you over points. You know, the bird finder is a dog that finds a lot of birds and points birds, but somehow you don't seem to get as many shot opportunities off of that dog, you know? Um, so, you know, when you're trying to breed great grouse dogs, um, you know, cause that's not a problem in the prairie. You get a shot almost on every bird you know that the dog is pointing <laughs> you know it's it, you know so you know when you get that productive point that produces a flush you know if you got the right length barrel and the right choke in there i would imagine you have a decent chance right so all my people are sending me limits of their sharp tails you know for the day um you don't see many pointing dog people you know from minnesota and east posting limits of roughed grouse you know um it just doesn't happen because it's, it's challenging terrain. The birds use it incredibly well and you need a really good dog to set you up to be able to shoot one, let alone four or five, you know, in a day. Um, you know, so, uh, I mean, today was a lousy day for me. Um, like we were talking in the beginning of this conversation, the weather's been terrible. It's 80 and, and he, like 80 plus percent humidity, uh, every day of the season so far. So, uh, mosquitoes like moved back in after being gone for a month and, uh, it's just hot and the birds aren't moving much. They've been hard to find. Uh, but I found nine birds today. I got a shot opportunity in early season, upper peninsula, grouse woods, thick classic cover. You know, I got a three shot opportunities and I made two of them. Um, to me, that's what it's all about creating dogs that 
can do that. Um, you know, uh, and that, and that's hard to do, you know, and another trait that, I mean, I select for, and I think, uh, again, collectively in the Llewellyn's we find a lot is the whole quote unquote hunt for the gun idea. To me, that's a really hard thing to identify on the prairie. If you have, um, if you've heard me talk in other podcasts and stuff, you know, uh, I really don't want to get into it in this one yeah. with tracking dogs and true dogs, but uh-huh. you know, um, you know, if, uh, if you have a true style dog on the prairie, um, it's pretty hard to, you know, as long as the dog can see you, you know, um, hunting for the gun element is, uh, can be hard to evaluate. You bring that dog in the woods where it's 20 yards away from you, you can't see you at all. Um, then you start to find out if they're just bird finders kind of thing, you know, and they can handle birds real well, but they're fiercely independent. There's a big difference between a dog that has a lot of point and is a bird finder and a dog that hunts for the gun, you know? Um, and you see that when you take away the visibility of the hunter and the visibility of the dog and how they still work together, um, while they're in search mode. Um, and if there's a tracking style dog, when they get that scent and how they wait for the hunter and, and that kind of thing before they start leapfrogging up a track. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, my dogs, my dogs, when I say my dogs, dogs, you know, that, that I've bred, um, they do, they do well on, on, on all species. I mean, all dogs are not created equal. Obviously everyone's not a superstar, but the people that, um, you know, are coming to me that are serious hunters and they're hunting from Montana back to the Lake States down to Bob white quail country. And, uh, then, uh, um, you know, down over to, you know, Southwest quail country. I, I mean, the dogs do well and everything. As you move further West, um, you have less humidity. So you see less cold nose tracking, um, cause quality tracking conditions has a lot to do with moisture. So as you have less moisture, you have less tracking, um, the tracking that you might see on covey birds, scale quail running or chucker running, even sharp tails, perhaps, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of scent of these birds, um, cause they're covey birds and, and it's hot tracking, you know, you know, you probably aren't getting tracks, uh, prior to the shot that are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards long, maybe on pheasants, you know, but, um, I would not anticipate that, you know, out farther west where it's really dry i've had people that hunt chuckers have one of my dogs they say it's a really great dog you know they they want to bring it back here for me to see so they come here and after like two days three days um they learn that their dog is a tracking dog they thought it was a true dog the whole time because they never really seen a track because you got wind out there so there's plenty of scent cone opportunities um and because the lack of humidity and just happenstance with how the dog has worked birds out there they never see the dog really put its nose to the ground before the shot you know then they come here where we're hunting in 80 percent humidity or 40 to 80 percent humidity you know um and like the sun like never touches the ground so there's you know optimal uh scent conditions for tracking and it's an intelligent dog so after a few days of working these birds the dog's is the dogs <laughs> finding more than half of its birds via tracking. Like, Whoa, I've never seen my dog do this before, you know, and it has everything to do with environmental conditions, um, that, uh, promote or inhibit the dog's ability 
to do that, you know? And yeah. again, there, there are genetic predispositions to being a tracking style dog or a true style dog, you know? Um, our American testing systems for field trials and other formatted tests, you know, have all been geared towards and promoted towards the, the true dog, the high headed, the high end, high and both ends dog that, you know, is going to, you know, run hard, stop fast, point scent cones. Every time the dog goes on point, there's a bird there kind of thing. And, um, you know, so this just very different based on, um, uh, the environments, but, an intelligent dog that's in very good condition should be able to handle any environment and and any type of dog, uh, any type of bird. Well, that's um, that's great so. to know because honestly, I wasn't concerned about her. I was concerned about what I am putting her through and making sure uh, <laughs> that. Yeah, I mean, but, she's. I mean, dogs are going to let you know their limits. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's so many things. I mean, you know, again, it's, it's conditioning isn't just giving the dog exercise conditioning is, you know, proper nutrition, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, my dogs, um, my, my dogs might be hunting an hour or two a day, but they do that for, you know, 80 to 90 days, you know, yeah. in a season, yeah. you know? And they're in the woods. They're getting that's a workout. smacked and hit by, you know, we got ferns right now that are chest high. Um, you can't see nothing in there, you know, and there's lots of blow down all over the place. So they're, they, you know, they got bloody wrists. They get dinged up. Their faces are all scratched up. I mean, it's, you know, it's a war zone in the woods and, and, uh, and they're maintaining, you know, they're still maintaining, you know, five to seven and a half miles an hour, you know, through all that. Um, so it beats them up. Um, you know, back East when I lived in the Catskills in upstate New York, um, I would, I would always take like three of my Llewellyns with me each day. I, I would go all around, uh, the Hudson Valley and I'd be training dogs from companion dogs, rehabbing aggressive dogs, hunting dogs. Um, certainly, um, I, I did a lot of companion dogs, but a lot of people were, um, they aspired to do like off leash hiking with their dogs. So I had tons and tons of sessions with people basically just getting the dogs to do rock solid off leash obedience in relatively populated, uh, mountain areas where they're hiking trails and all that. And I would have my Llewellyns with me, totally not grouse country at all, you know, mature forests. And, um, yeah, I look at the GPS after being out for like six to eight hours a day in the woods on some days that were concentrated hiking session days. And my Llewellyns were running literally 40 to 50 miles in a day. Jeez. You know, but there was zero adrenaline attached to that. Like they weren't hunting. They yeah. were just, you know, like they were hunting, like if they came across chipmunks, but these were, you know, mature trees where there's no, not a branch on the tree for 30 feet in the air. You know, it's just nothing on the for- forest floor. Um, and, uh, so they were cruising, you know, and they knew like I wasn't, they weren't, we, we weren't each other's focal points. They had the garments on them. They'd be within 150 yards all the time but they'd be running the whole day, you know? Um, and so they can do it, but you start adding a gun to that mix where you're now focused as a team where they know you're hunting, their adrenals are pumping, you know, you get into the thicker cover, you know? Um, and you know, a dog running, a dog running, uh, seven miles in the grouse woods, uh, is a lot on a dog. Um, and, uh, you know, it'd be, probably like the equivalent of a dog running 20 miles on the prairie, you know? Um, so, you know, you gauge the dog. I mean, one of the things is, um, uh, 
you know, dogs that dogs that typically are running under eight miles an hour, they're, they're not killing themselves. You know what I mean? You know, so, um, you look at what your dogs run. I mean, like I said, I got sent some stats from, from some of my dogs that <laughs> it's, it, um, they're running over 12 miles an hour on the prairie for a couple hours. And, uh, uh, that same dog again, will will be, you know, under seven and a half will be six something, you know, half the speed, um, in, in the woods. Um, and it would have to be, or else they would be breaking legs and, you know, <laughs> hitting, yeah. hitting solid objects, you know, more frequently, you know, um, but, uh, conditioning means a lot, um, exercise wise, food wise, you know, all my dogs, the entire season, I give them glycocharge as a supplement, you know, to help mm-hmm. glucose replenishment and stuff in their, in their muscles. And, and that makes a huge difference when there's, it's a day to day drain. Um, but even like the top notch field trials, like the Ames plantation, I think they run their dogs for like three hours, you know, um, that's a long time, you know? But for those dogs that you know are in like absolute peak physical condition, three hours, that's it. That's what they're hunting those dogs, you know, for yeah. in, the, in that competition, you know. So just because dogs can run more than three hours doesn't mean they can hunt effectively for more than three hours, you know. Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, that's where the dog power situation comes into play, you know. So, you know, out of fairness to the dog, I always tell people, you know, I'll, people have one dog, you know, and they'll take a week off to go grouse hunting, right? Or pheasant hunting. And they got one dog, you know? Um, yeah. uh, and just because the dog can do it doesn't mean you're doing it justice because when that dog is eight years old, nine years old, that those are the dogs that are just filled with arthritis, you know? That just, um, you know, you, you beat them up when they were younger, you know? And, uh, people come up here and, you know, they're weekend warriors. They want to, they, they're obsessed with hunting, but they got a regular nine to five job Monday through Friday. And then they go out and they think they're going to hunt with one dog, six hours, two days in a row, you know, and it's just, it's, that's, 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 that's animal abuse. doesn't matter how, yeah. how good of shape the dog is in. Um, because they can put one paw in front of the other does not mean that, that they can physically hunt well that way. So I think three hour limits personally with the dogs that are in optimal peak condition and are getting the support that they need, um, is the most. And if you're hunting a dog for three hours, you're not hunting them three hours, three days in a row, you know? And if you are, again, you're, you're, you're starting to negatively impact the dog's, uh, the, the dog's body in a, in like, years down the road sense, you know, so, um, condition them well, have the dog power you need. Um, and they'll give you a good number of hours, you know, routinely. I mean, every dog that is of appropriate weight, but not in shape can use an hour of exercise a day, you know? So, you know, when you start talking about conditioned athletes that are supported nutritionally correctly, you know, they can do multiple hours a day. Um, but again, that adrenal component is, is, uh, something I've been very fascinated by in the conditioning process and the hunting process, because, you know, the dogs are cracked out of their skull when they're actually hunting with you and you're carrying a gun and they might retrieve a bird, you know, and, uh, you know, it just, it adds a whole nother dimension to their physiology and what's going on, um, that people don't think about that when they're like, hooked up to the ATV and they're just running around, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a very different type of strain on their body 
because of what emotionally is going on with the dog. Oh yeah. Um, you know, so those, and there's a lot, there's a lot to it there. That's when they're on. Well, that, that, uh, gives me a lot better hope that, that I can get my dog in the field a lot more to, to do the justice that she deserves of, of just hunting. And, And I've always thought, I was like, I don't have that kind of time. Well, I, I do have, couple hours in the morning and our sharp tail season is open at i better check but it's like daylight and uh it's not like our pheasants where you have to start at either 10 or noon depending on the time of the season um yeah and well i gotta travel for pheasants anyway but for sharp tail i can, I can go out and do a little short hunt and still have a full eight hour day and yeah right so that that gives me a little hope that i can i can do her justice that because i'm i'm gonna be one of your your customers that or have one of your dogs that um uh i can't i can't be your serious hunter i i'm in the field 100 days out of the year hunting but it's big game it's shed hunting it's bird hunting waterfowl it's it's a mix of of everything um Mm -hmm. but it's not all upland yeah but she's a and just to kind of close this out so you can you can get to your the rest of your evening it's going an hour 15 i don't want to take any more of your time but your your dog's in a good home and she is a family dog and we've got a six month old in the house human not a not a pup uh, <laughs> that that uh she due to her intelligence i don't worry about the, the kid because uh-huh. she's not going to step on him she's not going to she she loves her little perch on the top of the couch and looking out the window. She sees the deer and the turkeys and whatever else go by. Uh, she need, she wants to watch it up uh, songbird in the tree. She wants to see it. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But she's uh, um, she goes with me. She's a travel buddy. Um, wish I could take her to work a little bit more. She'll be coming along on some pheasants forever veterans hunts and and a variety of things through work and getting some getting some stuff there. But. My goal this this year and October isn't even here yet, but uh, October was going to be a big bird month. And September, I'm always a little leery because of the heat um, and, and with the how dry it is. But getting out at seven o'clock in the morning shouldn't be too big a deal. With with that, it's we're having fifty degree, sixty degree morning, so we'll be able to 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 really hit it hit it for an hour and a half to two hours, and then head on into town to work. So I look forward to that and. If you don't yeah. mind, you you just maybe getting a, a picture, text, or a video or something as well. Yeah, no, hey, it's uh, it's tis the season. Like I said, it's been uh, uh, it's been loaded up with um, <clears throat> all sharp tail. I got I got more for a guy that's never never stepped foot on the prairie and hunted sharp tails. I have more videos and photos of sharp tails on my <laughs> phone <laughs> than you can imagine. Um, and it's cool to see, like I yeah. said, I live vicariously through, through them. And, you know, uh, maybe if I actually went out there, I would feel differently about it. Um, in a good way. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, it's funny. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that my, my people, um, you know, do it. Uh, and, uh, and I'm, I'm happy for them and I'm happy that the dogs get all the, all that experience. And again, it's good information for me as a breeder. Um, it's just funny. I I've never, I've never had the itch to, to go do that ever. Yeah. You know, yep. It's just, uh, it's different strokes for different folks, but it's an opportunity friends, thing like, for me here. Yeah, yeah. It's an opportunity you know? thing, but you're yeah. also making me wonder about our 
rough grouse in the hills because I live in the hills. Now it's just a matter. I don't think there's a ton of them, but and maybe there is. Yeah, makes well, me wonder. A, if there's a season, if there's a season on them, I mean, yeah, that would that would be something that Kyle would do. You know, I would I would go to South Dakota and hunt rough grouse. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know they're I know they're their behavior is very different in a lot of ways, but even if I went to Montana, uh, I would be more interested in the forested species and uh, Sierra Idaho. I mean, I, I had thought about Idaho when I was thinking about relocating from New York um, uh, because I could hunt rough grouse in Idaho as well and get some opportunities for uh, several other species as well. Um, but uh, grizzly bears and rattlesnakes, uh, <laughs> uh, change. So there's nothing poisonous, uh, here in, uh, upper Michigan, uh, besides the brown recluse spider and by name alone, it's not really that big of a deal. Um, we just but, avoid uh, the prairie dog towns. You avoid the, you go around the prairie dog towns and then yeah, should be yeah. pretty good. And we've done, we have a uh, like rattlesnake avoidance training that our dog sure. club here yeah, absolutely. has done. Absolutely. So that was a big yeah. one. And we, we do vaccines for it, which, can mm-hmm. save your dog's yeah. life. So yeah, that's I mean, in, the, in in New York, we have we have quite a few rattlesnakes, and and we did aversion training with the shepherds for search and rescue and stuff. I mean, we proofed those dogs basically off of every animal on the planet. So when mm-hmm. they were giving scent indication, we knew they were smelling a human and not a deer carcass or a rattlesnake or anything like that. But we, we did aversion training with a lot of things, including snakes. Um, but uh, knock on wood, here I. I I, I just, I don't have to, I don't have to do that. Yeah. We have wolves and, uh, cougars and, and moose, um, to, to deal with. But uh, overall, um, I, uh, I'm more worried about, I'm more worried about the bear hounds I hear in the woods these days, uh, while I'm in the <laughs> woods with my 30 pound setter than I, than I am the wolves or the moose. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, no, the, the prairies, uh, uh, an interesting uh, place and maybe someday I'll get there. Um, everybody wants to drag me there. Um, <laughs> but um, I got invitations and I think every single state to, to hunt all these different birds, but maybe someday it's, it's not my kind of hunting, but uh, I haven't, I have a lot of Norwegian blood in me. I grew up listening to stories of ptarmigan in Norway. Um, I, this dog that I bought is a, a top notch ptarmigan dog and, you know, the Alps of Italy, you know, so I don't know, maybe someday I'll, I'll, I'll pursue uh ptarmigan somewhere, but, there you go. um, uh, for the most part, um, we're pretty content right here. And, and all my people like to tease me and say, I like to suffer with the birds through the winter. And I just stay put, uh, you know, in our <laughs> you know, sub-zero, sub-zero temperatures here with the birds and their snow roosts and, and me, you know, uh, plowing every day, but, well, um, speaking of, uh, conditioning and, and, uh, on the dogs, just with that term again, holy smokes, that's going to be a, <laughs> a, uh, bring your boost oxygen. Cause going above uh-huh. tree line like that is, Oh yeah. Well, when I was in world. Italy, yeah, when I was in Italy, I was, uh, I mean, I, I'm out working the dogs every day. So I'm in, I'm generally in very, very good shape, but this was, this was kind of like the beginning of my in shape season. And, uh, while I was born and bred a mountain boy, you know, I'm pretty much a flatlander now in Northern Michigan here. So, um, you know, I was a little nervous about, you know, 
hunting between six and ten thousand feet with uh with the with the guys uh for that week and i and i did good i didn't have any issues until we got to like 8500 feet and then like when the dog was on point you know so pretty much eight, above 8500 feet there it's like you're above the tree line so you're in ptarmigan country and so like you know we were above that tree line and when the dog was on point 300 meters uphill you had a couple anxiety moments there where you know like i was not acclimated to that altitude (laughs) and hoofing it up like that so like you know i got my i got my hands on the back of my head you know raised my arms up trying to get some oxygen having myself my own quiet personal anxiety attack trying to catch my breath took some time so i can i can imagine uh what it's like hunting uh out west in the rockies and stuff um you know when people are up there hunting because it's definitely uh it definitely takes some getting used to for sure and uh and for the dogs i'm sure as well yeah absolutely well kyle i want to thank you so much for your time and i'd love for you to stick around i have two very simple simple (laughs) questions for you um but thanks again for for the podcast and the information and and i think a lot of us can take away some things on just bloodlines and breeders and genetics and and uh and learn something about a new species or different species so um not a new species by any means (laughs) but uh (laughs) but a different one so thanks thanks so much absolutely you're welcome it was great to be on Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment.